Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the El Blanco Gigante podcast. Super excited today to have on Thomas Wortman from uh, MUFON, Ohio. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me in. Yeah, so you, you've been interested in UFOs for a long time and you've been the director of Ohio MUFON for 16 years, I think? Well, I got involved with um, Ohio MUFON about, it's been about 13 years ago now. 13 years, okay. And it's one of those things that, uh, you know, I, I got interested in UFOs in the 1960s. I actually saw one and it wasn't the, the typical light in the sky, you know, from like a mile away. This was hovering above treetops and it was only like 40 feet above me. And it was about the size of a car. And I'm watching this thing. I'm like, what the heck is this thing, you know? And I'm walking through a woods with a buddy and to kind of give you a little bit more background about the story is uh, I lived in South Carolina at the time. And as we called it, hunting. Well, I use that term loosely because we probably shot more refrigerators. Any appliances were banded out, out in the, the peach orchards of what we shot. I don't remember shooting any animals. It was, it was all non-moving objects. Well, one day my buddy says, hey, let's go out hunting. So it was about three in the afternoon. We go out in the woods. I'm probably about 13. He's 15. And we've got pump shotguns. So we're going back in this woods and farther and deeper back in the woods behind his house. And it was a very rural area we lived in. Uh, I mean, you had a lot of dirt roads back then. So we're going back to this woods and he says, Hey, you notice anything? I said, what? He goes, it's quiet. He says, I don't hear anything. I said, yeah, you're right. I don't hear anything. No animals, nothing back in there. And he started freaking out. And then he tells me this story. He tells me a story about this creature called the Swamp Willie. He goes, you know, there's a Swamp Willie back here. I'm like, man, I got a 12 gauge with Magnums. And I ain't afraid of no Swamp Willie. I'll take it down. Rally was, I probably would have thrown the gun down and ran out of the woods, you know. But instead of going out of the woods, he goes deeper. He keeps going deeper and deeper in the woods instead of reversing course and getting out. And I kept... I was getting a little bit paranoid myself, but again, in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking this is a campfire story type thing, man. He's just trying to scare the crap out of me. Well, we keep going deeper into the woods and all of a sudden I look up and I see this silver disc hovering directly above us, right above the treetops. I look up, he's ahead of me. I look up, I look down, look up, look down. You know, I'm double checking him and watching this object and it's following us. And it's, it's close enough to brush the treetop, exaggerating. I never said a word to him about this object that was above the treetops. I don't know why, but I never did. Well, we finally get out of the woods, and we kept going deeper into the woods till we finally found a dirt road on the far side. We got out, and he goes, did you see that big white owl in front of us? I said, what do I have, white owl? He says, this thing was about yay high, and he's motioning about four foot high. I'm like, there's no four foot holes out here, you know. He goes, this thing was standing there and it had big black eyes staring at us. Well, I never saw an owl and I never told him about the UFO. And all I ever saw with heard about from him was the owl, the owl, the owl, the owl that was in front of us. But I never told him about the UFO. And in the back of my mind, that's that vision always stayed with me all those years. So I kind of started reading the UFO books, of course, the other books on the paranormal and things like that over the years. And then I got away from it because like a lot of us, we eventually have a family, raise kids. You've got other priorities. And then about 
13 years ago, I'm kind of going through like midlife crisis. And I'm saying, hey, it's time to get back to something I enjoyed. I've always enjoyed like science fiction, the paranormal, things like that. And I hooked up with a small group in Cleveland area uh, called the Cleveland Ufology Project. They've been around since 1952. I went to one of their meetings. It was kind of like karma. They started talking about UFOs. I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool. The other thing is they met about a mile from my house, which was convenient. Made a number of good friends there over the years, but they were more of a general interest group now. They didn't do the investigations. They just did a lot of discussion stuff. And I wanted to do the investigation side. So I, I searched out MUFON, hooked up with them, took the investigator's exam, and started doing cases. And now I've probably done maybe five, 600 cases in 13 years. Yeah. Wow. That's 200 of them. Most in the United States, but 200 were in Canada, 200 were in the United Kingdom. I did some in Puerto Rico, a lot of places. And it was always interesting on how, you know, you got these stories and how the people responded all over the different parts of the world on what they were seeing. And to me, the big thing is, is they're seeing something. First of all, they're describing it to you. And why are they describing it in the way they are, you know? It's the way they interpreted what they saw. And they're relaying the events on the best that they can. And I always enjoyed the interaction with the people. And then I'm also the nerd, the techie nerd that, you know, put me on a computer. Let me do research. And I'm going to show you so many tools that's available out there for research that you wouldn't believe it. And I've enjoyed it these 13 years. And I worked my way up from field investigator to um, chief field investigator and then finally state director. And that goes back state director now is about five going on six years ago now, something like that. Wow. And we've got a great group of investigators, a uh, great group of people. And, and I really enjoy it. About how many investigations or reports do you get a year in uh, Ohio? I pulled those numbers and this is what can be misleading. If you go on the internet, which a lot of people do and they start searching things out, they say, well, let's see, uh, I'm from Ohio. So let's see how many UFO cases are in Ohio. Well, MUFON got 189 last year. We got roughly about 216 in 2019. And it, it's, it's actually, I've seen a decline in it. But if you go to different websites, you'll see an increase and they'll say, oh, there's a flap. Well, a flap means that you've got tons of UFO cases in a small region. So let's say, for example, if somebody was from like, uh, let's say in the Chicago area, all of a sudden you see all these cases coming in from Chicago. If that number gets up high, if they may consider it a flap, like there's an incident going on there. Well, that can be kind of deceiving because it depends on who you get your numbers from and where they're getting their numbers from. Um, there's another group out there which does a great job called the National UFO Reporting Center. They take in reports, but their reports aren't investigated. They get reports in, but they kind of go in a database and never get researched. Where ours get followed up by investigators. Uh, we basically put the boots on the ground, contact the witnesses, go back and review the cases, 
And what we do is we put in a, um, basically a, um, a definition of how we consider the case. You've got outcomes which can be, we found no possible solution. It couldn't have been an airplane. It couldn't have been this. It couldn't have been that. So it goes in a general category of unknown. And there's a couple different types of unknowns we've got. Uh, you've got unknown vehicles in the sky, which is like somebody saw like a, like a craft that they could, we couldn't, you know, put our finger on. It wasn't an airplane or anything like that. You've got other ones, which are like anomalous lights, people seeing mysterious lights in the sky, which is a different category. You've also got IFOs. I pulled the numbers on it and 60% of the cases we got in last year that are closed, we identified what they were. They could have gone back to aircraft. They could have gone back to something as simple as somebody saw Venus and they misidentified Venus. You also get a few hoaxes in. Uh, we had about seven of those last year where, oh, I saw this, uh, this alien came in my house and he did all sorts of weird things to me, man. <laughs> and you start checking a story out and it's, it's full of holes. And I've gone as far as um, using some of the tools I used when I was in education. One of the things I looked at when I was in, in education in the colleges is plagiarism. So you go back and you take a, a bit of their text that they've typed up and submitted. You do a search on the internet for that exact text. And sometimes you get an exact hit that it's from a book, an article, and they've done a cut and paste and just turned it in. And, and I can see it happening because we've had the pandemic. Some people are going to get bored out there and they think, hey, let's just have some fun. You know, that was actually so my next question. Can do you do you okay. think based off of the pandemic there's a uptick or a um less less cases being reported due to uh people being stuck in the house yeah i've seen a decline and i know different other ones will say no it's an increase but i the numbers i'm looking at coming into move i see the general decline a lot of that goes to you don't have as many people out interacting Think about like summer activities, how many people go out fishing, how many people go out and do camping, other outside activities during the summertime. And those are going to be more restricted now. Uh, people aren't doing as much of that. We got a lot of reports in where people may go out and let's say they went out to the park. They're out walking in a park at night. We're losing reports like that. And I've seen probably about a 20% decrease this year, the last couple of years over the previous years, just, I think it's primarily due to the pandemic. It's not that the objects aren't there that, you know, the people can see, it's just that people aren't out there at that time. Mm -hmm. That's what I think it really boils down to. What are the protocols when someone reports uh, a sighting or an encounter? Well, MUFON's got a unique system. We've got a database. What people can do is go in, and submit a, a report online. When I got involved with this years ago, it was all hard copy stuff. Get out a piece of paper. You've got like a four page report to fill out with a description where the witness lists their name, address, where they saw the object at. They give general descriptions of the objects. And our reports are really kind of adapted over from the old Project Blue Book reports going back to the 1960s. They were just kind of modified and used for our own purposes on there. So people could turn in old written reports. They still can. But for efficiency now, 
and also for and stuff like that. It's online. So the witness can go on online from home. They can remain anonymous if they want. They fill out the report. Uh, again, the same basic description, who's submitting it, where, where the sighting was at, the time of date, the certain things, what type of object they saw, give a description on it. And I was looking some over, and there's, there's some really unique ones out there. Uh, you get some general lights in the sky. But then you, get, you have other people saying, hey, back in the 1950s, I was growing up and I saw this thing. And I want to talk about it, talk about it now. And those can be difficult to investigate, but we still like to have the information on them. You've also got people who said, hey, I saw an entity. Uh, we also have a team that researches that area in particular. So the report comes in, they review it quickly. And then what they do is uh, it goes into our database, which is out of California. Then it gets turned around and flipped back to the state that it originated from. So if the case came in from Ohio, it goes right back to Ohio to investigators. Some states may not have investigators, so we may have investigators from other the closest state by helping assist with those. We've also got a case assistant group team that comes in and helps out those cases. But you figure you've got 50 states and we're international. So we get cases in from Canada, United Kingdom, Puerto Rico, all over the world. We'll get cases from. And we'll go back and we'll follow up on those and research them. We'll look at stated. We'll contact the witness, review all their details. And, you know, that can really be interesting too, Chance, because the witness may start talking about what was in the case that they submitted. And then you may find out they've got other experiences way beyond what was in that report. That's way better than what the report was. You're like, wow, they had this other case a few years ago. This is actually way better. And you work everything at that point. But then the nice thing about that database is I can go back in and say, okay, let's look for cases of June of 2018. And I can search for cases across the U.S. in June, in Ohio, in certain counties within Ohio. And it, I can go back into a data mine for certain words. And as an investigator, that really helps out compared to the old paper type formats on there. Because you may find similarities between a number of cases. And, and that's what I really get into. I'm, I'm the geek, like I said. Interesting you say that Northeast Ohio and back in the 60s, there was a lot of, you know, reports. My mom told me a story about my grandmother, my grandfather, and my mom standing outside in the front yard. This is in Bedford Heights, Ohio, east side of Cleveland here, with all the neighbors. The entire neighborhood was standing outside in my grandfather's lawn, staring up at this object. The police showed up. They were staring up at the object. And, and to this day, nobody knows what it was, who, you know, where it came from, if it was a UFO, UAP, whatever it was. Everybody, the whole neighborhood was out there and they saw this thing. And I'm wondering if it got reported. It was back in, uh, you know, 60s, 70s. But for well, an entire back city in... to see it, it has to be pretty, pretty credible, you know, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, back in the 1960s, that Cleveland group was in existence. That's one place it may have gotten turned into because sometimes referred to as amateur groups, but some of these amateurs had some very good people within them that had good scientific knowledge. 
Well, I happen to have the archives from that Cleveland group from the 1960s, and I have to go through and pull them up. I've gone back and digitized all the reports and put them into electronic format so I can pull them up easier. But I do remember there were a number of reports from the 1960s around Cleveland area. And just so that you know, um, in the movie Close Encounters, if you ever saw it, yeah, if you saw the movie, you remember the, the, the chase where Richard Dreyfus is in the pickup truck chasing the UFO? He's gone down the highway. He goes on the turnpike. You know, that actually is very close to here where it happened, what they were basing it on. In really? the movie, it said uh, basically entering Indiana. Well, oh. it was actually based on an incident from 1966 in Ohio that happened in Portage County where two deputies chased a UFO from Portage County, Ohio into Pennsylvania, which was like 86 miles. And that is one of the top cases of all times because they chased this thing. They said the thing came over them. Uh, they're out uh, in a little area, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called Atwater, a little small town in Portage County. And they'd gone out to help assist with a t an accident that night. And it was about, uh, I think about five in the morning, something like that. And the deputies see an abandoned car and pull up beside it. They get out and start coming up beside the car. And one of the deputies looks back and sees this object coming at him. It comes over him. And he said it was so bright. It was like looking down the gates of hell. He said it was like the size of the car passed over them, illuminated the whole area, kind of like in the movie Close Encounters, illuminating the whole area. And the thing starts wobbling it stays by them then it goes across the road the next thing it starts going slowly down the road so they go in pursuit and they chase it through all these winding country roads up to it speeds up to 100 miles an hour going into pennsylvania until they ran up basically ran out of gas <laughs> yeah and that is one that in 1966 also there were in michigan uh seen up there that was a year that they did consider what i termed a flap where you had a high number of ufo reports um, over a period of time in, in my archives, I've got a letter from a then house representative and he was given all this information on UFOs to look at. And he goes, you know, the military answers are all bunk. He says, we need to look into this. Gerald Ford. That was before he became president. Well, I mean, and it's, it's like, even wow. Now, you know, you've got the uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Uh, you got the CIA uh, releasing their uh, CD-ROMs of information. What are your thoughts on uh, the database that was just released, essentially, of CIA records? And do you feel like that is truthful? Do you feel like it's there's a lot to dig into? Have you started to look into it? Well, if it's truthful, I've looked at some of the files. Um, it really is very incomplete because the CIA files aren't these smoking guns a lot of people are looking for. What you're seeing in the CIA files is a number of uh, basic uh, reports from around the world where somebody like sent a transmission into like Washington saying, hey, somebody was on uh, uh, this show talking about seeing UFO in Romania or someplace like that. But there's no details. A UFO was seen in this region. You had other ones where it was something as simple as a certain person was talking about UFOs on a TV show. And a lot of this stuff goes back to the 1960s. 
Now, part of that could be the reason they're monitoring it is, who knows, maybe they were testing uh, uh, some sort of surveillance vehicles back then, like U-2, U-2 spy planes, and they wanted to see if things were being seen and things were being tracked. And they wanted to see if UFO reports showed up because maybe it was goes back to somebody seeing one of these spy planes. But the bad part about them is all these documents were non-searchable. It was basically a hard copy. They digitized them, but you would have to go back and make them uh, searchable documents. But I don't think you're going to see the smoking gun in those. I, I think there's, there's more out there someplace. If there's not more out there, then the, they didn't do a great job. Not as much as what people think. People are uploading lots of uh, videos to YouTube. Does that help or hinder your guys' investigations when, when there's video, video evidence? I'd say probably it hinders it more because at times what you'll do is it's easier for somebody to submit, to put a, a video on YouTube than sometimes to fill out a report and send it in. They'll say, let me just post my video. This is a UFO I saw. The drawback is there. They don't really give you any information with it. Look, I'm seeing UFO. What time of day was it? Exactly where you were you at? What direction were you looking? All the pertinent information we need. Who are the wit other witnesses with you? Well, there's like five other people there, but who? We want to get their statements also, get their stories. So it can be a hindrance. The other thing is, is sometimes you get people who, what well, was just like this other incident. Why well, look at all the cases as being separate, even though you may see lights or an object similar in shape to something else, don't basically clutter the report with information that may not be factual because you may say, oh, it was like this, but maybe there were differences and you're kind of lumping it all together. So they can be almost more. And the other thing you get is at times people put phony stuff out there. They portray stuff as being something really unusual, and it's not. And then somebody else sees something, um, sees an object. Oh, was, uh, look, there's five other YouTube videos out there from my region. All these other people saw this thing. We had a case in Columbus a couple of years ago where nine reports came in in one night in Columbus. You saw all these YouTube videos popping up, and these people making certain things on you uh, really unique. And there are also other people out there too that um, take a video and, and use it for the purposes to make money. They'll add their own narrative into it. They'll make it seem like really outrageous, ridiculous. And that kind of clutters the whole thing. Well, the one in, one in Columbus ended up being skydivers at night. They were diving out of airplanes with pyrotechnics strapped to their legs. And I know the group, I've called them up a number of times saying, hey, were you guys out there doing another performance? Yeah, well, that was us. <laughs> and they make it on the nightly news. But those videos pop up. The other thing is, is what I like about if somebody sends us a raw video, as I call it, where it hasn't been on, they didn't get it from YouTube. It's their own personal video. If they took up their cell phone, it may have metadata information in it, in the video which is the electronic information regarding the type of phone that they used, the camera settings for shutter speeds, aperture, all that stuff. 
And by the way, if it's got GPS, it may have the GPS coordinates and confirming the time, the date, and everything about what they saw, which gives us more information. So are there at any, times the YouTube can be hindered. Are there any recent videos that you've received or been um, submitted that are pretty credible that you guys are confident? I've gone over some, and I was doing some this afternoon just for the show. And I didn't see anything that really jumped out at me 100%. It really got my attention. Um, I've gone back and had some sent to me. And I've researched them. Uh, in other words, I've tried to pull the metadata information from them. I've gone back and tried to enhance the videos. I've gone back and looked at them. I'm not just really confident enough about it. Um, we had one really interesting video came in to me um, about a year ago that this was actually from a police dash cam. The officer got permission from his captain to send me the video. And this thing was a really interesting looking object. But the thing I like is the tools we've got available to help do stuff like, for example, aircraft. I can go back two years and look at uh, transponders going over different regions. I'll go back also and look at military operation areas, which you've got a number of them in Ohio, where you do even have fighter jets flying at night doing dogfighting in certain parts of the state. Uh, I've also got certain access to military uh, transponder information. And in this case, they had a pilot flying at a little over a thousand feet in the region right above the police officer. And I don't know what that guy was doing. It was almost like the guy was flying the plane drunk at night. He was just all over the place, but it really freaked the cop out, <laughs> but it, that, it was a great video, but there was nothing that really like, here's an object that landed on a field. Nor, here's what can happen when somebody comes across something like that. And we've had, we had one in Southern Ohio down by Mechanicsburg where an individual rounded a bend and they saw an object that wasn't oval, wasn't this shaped. It was actually more hexagonal shaped six-sided. It had landed on the highway. He comes around the bend, he sees it, slows down, and then the object raised up, took off, and it starts going. He follows it down the road for some ways. And the witness seemed very credible, and that's the, the thing is sometimes you have, you're, you're, you're basing things off of the witness's stories. How credible are they? This gentleman was of an age that he seemed very, very believable, very grounded in what he was saying. We tried doing testing for like uh, radiation, all sorts of trace evidence, and we found nothing down there. But the thing about it is the person probably had a cell phone on their seat right beside them or in their pocket, and they never thought of the camera out. And I've heard that in a number of cases. We had another one where the witness reported seeing almost like a Rubik's Cube hovering over a field in Southern Ohio during broad daylight. And he says, all these people are passing right by him. And he says, he's there looking at it and nobody notices the thing setting in the field. He never thinks about getting a camera out. So I think that can be part of it. When you get certain cases, the people are so fascinated in what they're seeing, they totally forget about technology. It's been said that UFO activity is heightened around nuclear missile sites. Ohio has a couple of nuclear plants. Do you feel like there's any increased activity around those areas? Well, we had one uh, um, reports coming in from around Sandusky, the power plant over there. 
one of my friends actually lives over there who's a uh, researcher. She's a retired research scientist. She's got a condo and they were seeing objects over the power plant at night. And it wasn't just her from one view. You had other witnesses from different directions looking at the same power, seeing the object above the power plant. So it's almost like you could triangulate where this object was at and it was above the power plants. We we're trying to get some instruments out there to see if we could pick up magnetic fields, anything like that. But we couldn't, we couldn't get anything out there at the same time when these incidents were going down. But you're right. There have been incidents of power plant there. You've had some on the other side of the state where we've had some reports coming from the power plants around that region. And even in Ohio, uh, there's been stuff that's going back for years. Uh, nuclear missiles and stuff like that in places that would completely shock you that they were at. Have you heard of the Oumuamua? It's the first um, interstellar object detected passing through the solar system. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah. You, you did your homework. <laughs> well, You've actually, been doing your homework. One of my... Uh, one of my coworkers uh, is really interested in it and wanted to know your thoughts on it. So she submitted that question. Well, you know, interesting thing you brought that up. When I was with the Cleveland group, what I would do is I'd research different recent events. And I would put these events up at our monthly meetings that we had. I'd put them up on the overhead. I'd do PowerPoints and stuff along with them. And when an incident came up, here you've got an object which is coming in. And a lot of like comets and objects like that coming like horizontal with our, the rotation of the planets around the sun. This object came in perpendicular at like a right angle. And it came into the solar system and then it shot off at an angle. Almost like it was in a sense being guided. It's the, was the first identified known object of its type to be coming in from a different star system. So they called it an interplanetary visitor. Um, there is a, a researcher from Harvard who is a big believer that this thing is a interplanetary visitor that's potentially almost like a satellite. And I, at a meeting, is, without being prompt, I said, you know, what if, what if you're an interstellar visitor? I said, we think of something like Star Trek. You get on the Enterprise, you go from star system to star system in 60 minutes. You know, you've got to keep it within an hour time frame. I said, but the reality is, by the time we got to another star system, everybody could be dead. Everybody could be gone. You'd have to maintain life support. You'd have to have food as we know it, unless everything is like robotic and stuff. So what if you made something that was based like a robot that would just gather information and it would pass from star system to star system and just keep gathering information. And then you get that, that resources back somehow. So you don't have to worry about people on board. So you send this thing out and what it does is it goes into one star system, Kind of almost like in Star Trek, it goes around their sun, gains speed, and shoots out at a different angle towards another star system. And it's just on an indefinite voyage. I made it up as half as a joke, but also half serious because true. It could be true. Well, I mean, you know, in, a sense, that, yeah. 
in a sense, that's what we're doing with the Perseverance rover on Mars. Like, we can't go to Mars at this point because we can't survive, sustain a, a life on Mars. So we're sending a robot, essentially, to go check it out and observe and see if there's any, you know, source of life, source of water, source of whatever might be groundbreaking. Right. So I don't and think I it's think... totally unrealistic to think that inner galaxy exploration is possible at some point. No, I don't think so. And I think you have to be thrown in the category really of plausible that until you can say, can throw enough evidence. Otherwise you ha it has to be an open possibility that what if somebody's just using like an asteroid, a comet as like a shelter for all this instrumentation. I mean, when you think about passing through who knows tens of thousands of years through space, all the impacts it could potentially have with other things out there. Why not put it in something like a rock and just launch it? It makes sense to me. Also, if it's passing through a star system, somebody may not look at it as being an exploration type craft. And they may be transmitting information back in a form that we just don't know about. Kind of like on that point when um, uh, you get into SETI using the uh, radio telescopes to look for signals from space. Well, the first thing about that is somebody also has to have a similar technology that they're broadcasting something in a broadcast band. Then you have to be monitoring that frequency area. And for years, SETI only monitored kind of like a narrow band frequency area. What if you're transmitting on something way beyond that? So, I mean, we're looking for something like that, but what if somebody's using a technology we're just completely not familiar with? Who knows? Maybe they've developed something that's almost instantaneous in transmission. I think a lot about how quick technology is advanced over the past 30 years and how close we are to even more really groundbreaking technologies. You know, we're on the verge of AI. I think at some point there will be some new types of uh, propulsion, possibly, you know, electronic vehicles are the, the wave of the future. And it's just really exciting to think of all the possible things that we'll see in our lifetime that are just like at one point, unimaginable we are behind in some sense of like we're not the jetsons which is everybody what compares to you know 2020 we should have flying cars at this point but who knows how quickly right. the technology is advancing at this point with you know china and russia and the united states these big countries that are really putting a lot of money into technology and advancement you know we've come so so far so quickly i'm really excited to see what happens in our lifetime uh it's even it's some sometimes strange just to talk to my daughter um about like music technology and how far it's come and i was just talking today about how mm -hmm. uh we had to use america online and that was 20 years ago <laughs> and right so in the in the past hundred years we went from motorized vehicles to now we're on the internet and putting rovers on mars it's really exciting to think of what yeah. could happen in the next 50 years and what discoveries we can make and technologies and, and advances, advancements we can create. I listen to a lot of podcasts and one of the things you're talking about is like, you know, the Tic Tac, mm -hmm. how the, the propulsion system, there wasn't one existing. So like they're trying to figure out how could this thing possibly be going so fast through space? You know, Joe Rogan had asked Elon Musk, do you think at some point we'll have a new technology for rockets? And he said, no. He goes, there's just no way to replace, you know, based off of science, there's currently no way to replace rockets other than, like, we couldn't have a battery-powered rocket. You just can't go fast enough with a battery-powered rocket unless you get it up into the air really quick. And I, I'm really waiting for someone to 
to test that out and prove him wrong. Cause I think at some point in our life, they will. Well, yeah. There's, there's a, a thing that they're working on along those lines where it's a space sail. That's this large sail that if you shoot a laser at it, it basically provides propulsion to it. And in space, they're saying, if you could keep that laser going long enough, you could get that thing up almost the speed of light. Well, that wouldn't be using rocket engines. So that's, you know, that's kind of like what you're going after right there. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, you know, groundbreaking technologies. And, and, and you're right, who, what we're going to see in our lifetime or what may also really be in development right now that we don't know about. Because in our military right now, um, what we're seeing is really about 30 years behind what they're working on. They're working on stuff about 30 years ahead of where we're at, roughly. And when you refer to the Tic Tac, in one of the um, documents they had, one of the um, things that they, they were talking about with the Tic Tac is the ATIP group was exploring stuff 30 years in advance of where we're at right now. And I think that ties into what our military is also doing. Uh, one of the reports I saw of like Area 51, uh, which is that great mysterious area. One of the hangars that they used to use for some of the older spy planes is being converted over to something else. And these people have gotten close enough to get cameras looking into it or reporting seeing what appears to be like drones setting under like underground hangars, which are kind of open on the side and not just one drone, but basically a swarm of drones for the next generation of defense. You're launching swarms of drones and they're saying that this area is big enough that they most likely are playing around, uh, getting them all coordinated, communicating. So when they go into an area in a swarm, they're all communicating together. That's the next generation they're probably looking at for defense. Some of the stuff that we are not aware of with our military, it's, yeah, it's scary to think the stuff that we don't know about, but sometimes it's better off you don't know. Hypersonic missiles at 6,000 miles an hour. I mean, that's scary. They're coming in so fast, you've got no time to react. And some of these are now being proposed as being launched from planes, hypersonic missiles. That's scary. Do you think we learned a lot of stuff from UFOs that possibly landed in crash in Roswell? Do you think that that's a a plausible theory that we were able to like scavenge technology from unknown aircraft? Yeah, we may have been able to gather some information from them. But the thing is, is when you look at it realistically, um, there are people out there who really attribute to almost everything we do on alien technology, reverse engineered. But first of all, I don't want to sell the human race short. I mean, we were ingenious individuals. We, I think we're capable of developing a lot of things along like the lines of going from the vacuum tube to transistors, to integrated circuits, microcomputers. I think there's been a natural progression there. To, there's other things that may not be. Now, one of my thoughts has been for years, let's say if you recover something at Roswell, one of the places it may have been taken to at that time was Wright Bait, Wright Field back in Dayton, which is now Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, have you ever been down there? It's, I, a, I've it's an past, interesting yeah, base to be I'm on. Familiar with it? Well, it, you could put stuff on the base. A lot of stuff is underground. Even I'm thinking if you brought something back, put it below ground, almost like in the 
Independence Day. You put it below ground. You basically seal it up below ground because it may take you 100 years to reverse engineer stuff. Because if you've got materials coming in, I've got a background in metallurgy and other fields. If you've got unique metals that you're finding, you may be able to break them down, analyze them, figure out what they're made of, but reverse engineering that material may be much more challenging. One of the things that the ATIP group was looking at was materials along those lines. It, it may be, let's say, kind of like a common material, but it's got very, very unique properties. Let's say you've got, uh, like in Star Trek, you had the transparent aluminum that they supposedly, you know, were, were it had. Well, aluminum that you could see through. Here you've got a natural me- or a normal metal but it has unique properties. Being able to reverse the reverse engineer those properties would be the challenge. Thing, let's say, for example, um, just using example from present day, if you took your cell phone and took and gave it to Alexander Graham Bell, could he duplicate it? No. He'd have to, first of all, understand the technology behind it. What are those little small circuits in there? What do those things do? I mean, they're micro circuits. He doesn't know what's inside those things. So it would take decades for him again to even begin to reverse engineer something like that. So I think if something was found in 47, we may just now be seeing some of the results of some of that stuff, of some of the technology, if they've been able to reverse engineer it. And who knows, um, the Tic Tac objects they're reporting off the coast of like California and North Carolina. Maybe some of those objects that they're seeing could be the results of something like that that they finally were able to reverse engineer some of that technology they came across back in the 40s. That could explain some of these unique vehicles they're seeing. Are you getting any Tic Tac reportings? And also, do you get military reporting at all? We'll get some reports in. Um, What I do a lot is during the summer before the pandemic, I was going out and doing a lot of talks around the state. I would do maybe about 30 plus talks around the state at local libraries open to the public. And I love those because what I like to do is you set up a type of a a thing where you give a presentation, but the idea is you're giving a presentation over different material, but you want to open the public up to talk about their own experiences. And I did a, there's actually a MUFON meeting down in Columbus, which are our MUFON meetings are open to the public. A guy came up to me, this was before the Tic Tac. This had to go back to about uh, 2009, maybe something like that. He came, he came into the meeting. I looked over and you know, how you can kind of pick out people just by the way they look, you can kind of identify maybe what they do. And I like to do that on occasion. I looked at this guy and he had like a nine-year-old kid with him. He had to be maybe like early forties. I'm like, man, that guy looks like a mini Tom Cruise, man. Every hair in place, handsome, good looking guy, you know, in shape, I'm like, he looks to me like he's former military. My bet is he just got out of, after doing 20 years, he's retired. And now he just stopped in to see the meeting. After the meeting, the, the guy never said a whole word during the meeting. He comes up to me. And again, this is before the Tic Tac stories ever came out. Because I just want to tell you, you know, um, on a personal basis, he says, I was in the Gulf War. I was stationed on board carrier. When I was on board carrier, he says they were scrambling our fighters up to intercept objects. And he says they weren't foreign adversaries. They were tracking objects on radar that weren't ours. They weren't theirs. 
they sent him up to intercept him. And he says the pilots were getting ticked off because they were being scrambled. And they couldn't do a thing about these things. They were completely outmaneuvering anything we put up there. He says they could outturn us, they could outmove us. He says the, the flight commanders refused to even go in pursuit of these things anymore because it was just ridiculous. And he goes, this was during the Gulf War. Well, now, a few years ago, the Tic Tac story breaks out. And what he described to me was the Tic Tacs, things going high rates of speed, outmaneuvering our planes that sounded very similar to those. So he was probably describing something similar. And the Tic Tacs, by the way, have been reported in military operation areas, like training areas, but also they've reported some of the ones over around the Gulf, like when the wars were going on. Who knows what they were doing? But I've got they were actively jamming the signals as well, right? Like they were, yeah, like they were trying to shoot radar at them. They couldn't, they couldn't get a, a track on them or, you know, determine how fast they were going because they were actively jamming, which is an act an act of war. Yeah, that's what Commander Fravor was saying. Uh, when that story broke about the Tic Tac, I remember going back and dissecting it from all the information I had. And, and one of my friends actually interviewed a number of those people in the group, Fravor and the other ones, for a research team. And when I saw it, I'm like, the videos that came out are two separate incidents. Those aren't the same incidents. They're two separate ones from one another. And I said, Fravor, the way they're building it up, he was the one who I said he couldn't take the video. Well, as it came out later on, he was the one who did the first encounter with him. He came back and told the, the following flights going out basically what he saw, and they were prepared. And they took the video of the Tic Tacs on the later flights. But they'd been going on. They saw 100 objects over a period. That's a lot. And what was interesting is that was the first time that they'd really pursued them. They tried to intercept them. Basically, I think what they'd done in the past is well, these things are moving at a speed that we can't, that aren't, you know, we can't travel at. So it's probably a, a radar malfunction. It's a radar error. So don't even try to track it. Well, this time they just did. And look what they found. What are your thoughts on uh, the, the Bob Lazars who have information and they, they're credible to an extent? Why, why don't you think there are more people who come out? Are they worried about retaliation, disappearing? Why don't you think people who work in Area 51 or have really credible information regarding UFOs come out? Is it because they are coming out, but there's disinformation to say that their stories aren't credible? Yeah, I think you've got a little bit of all the above. Like in a Bob Lazar, he's got an interesting story. But one of the things that I've got fault with on his story is I was in education for years. And I put um, a very big thing on verifying education, being truthful about your education and so forth. And Bob Lazar claimed he went to, you know, certain universities. Well, that didn't prove out. He didn't. He only held like a bachelor's degree. He didn't have this master's degree that everybody was claiming. He had basically a bachelor's and it wasn't from like an MIT. He only attended like one class at MIT or some school like that. So they kind of shot holes in his story. The other thing is he was involved with some incidents. Uh, I think he lives in Michigan now where some chemicals were being sold uh, that were very, very unique that actually were involved in, in murdering somebody. And they were sold to his group, his, his store. He runs almost like an apothecary in, in Michigan now. But it's things like that shoot his story down. And some may say, well, it's different ones providing disinformation about him. And some of the, some of the stuff I think it's truthful about him. 
But the thing is, is going to other ones, though. There are those who I've hit the witnesses myself who say, hey, I'm afraid, man. I'll tell you what I saw, but I'm not going to go on the record because I still think that somebody may whack me. I had an individual who claimed that he was a, he walked in on an autopsy at Wright Pat. He was working at Wright Pat in the medical department. Uh, he claimed that for some time they had a, a vault that was down. It was basically padlock shut. He says this padlock wasn't a padlock like it would come from a, a factory made thing. It was like it was haphazardly welded on as an afterthought. He comes in one day, the vault's open. And laying on the autopsy table in another room is an alien body. And it's being examined by various military personnel, along if he said guys in suits. Now, this happened back in the 80s. And I'm like, why are you talking about now? He goes, my health's crap. And I may not make it very long. So I'm at a point right now I'm there. But he says, I never told my wife about it. And he says, that was in the 80s. And this is now. Here we are 30 some years later. And he goes, she's never known about it. We've been married almost all that time. But he says, I was afraid he could get whacked. And he was even afraid the day we were talking that something could happen. But I can understand that to a degree. Or, or if somebody's in the military, uh, you could get sent to some base in the Arctic. <laughs> or accidents can happen. Planes can go down. Uh, I mean, there's been incidents reported over the years where it's possible that happened where materials were covered. They were supposedly being flown back to a base and the plane crashes, everything going. I think that could potentially happen. Do you think the pop culture aspect of aliens and UFOs is hurting research and the believability of UFOs and aliens? Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I mean, it can, it can do more damage. You're right. Because when you get stuff out in Hollywood, they're going to be looking at one thing, the dollar sign. That's what they're after. You've got sci-fi channel, which turns out who knows how many Sharknado movies and stuff like that. Well, they turn out some really crappy uh, alien movies too. And I've seen some stuff come in by amateurs I thought was better than sci-fi channel a couple times. But you know, you've got that. And then the other thing that I don't watch as many of these shows like the ancient aliens. I have individuals who follow those religiously. I don't. Uh, matter of fact, I just did a, a episode for a show called UFO witness. They had me in for a segment where I was involved with giving them some research. And the thing is, is at the end of the day, I mean, you can have this, this storyline that they're doing, but you've got producers that want things interpreted their ways to make it interesting. And what type of stuff are they going to put in? What stuff are they going to put out? One of the best examples along those lines, um, Travis Walton, if you're familiar with his story, he was the logger in the 1970s who disappeared for five days. They made a movie about him called Fire in the Sky. Travis, nice guy, got to spend like three days with him, talking to him about his, his case and stuff. And he said that the movie that they put out back not long after the whole thing happened, he says, was crap. It was made up. He says... Really, his story, what really happened to him was much more bland. He says he was never put in some embryo. He was never being drugged around by aliens like they showed in there. Uh, he just remembers being on a craft, seeing aliens in front of him. And uh, he didn't know how long he was gone. He eventually gets his way out of the ship. And he says it was really much more bland story. But the bad thing is, 
is individuals who think of Travis Walton may remember that movie. And I had a witness saying that, hey, a lot of what happened to me was like what happened to Travis. I said in the movie, it was all freaking made up, except these scenes. Really? Yeah, no kidding. It was made up. So what you're thinking happened to you may be unique or, you know, you're trying to fill in holes, fill in gaps in both your, you know, in your story by supplementing stuff. And it's maybe not true, you know, so they can do damage. As we were been, I was binge watching the other day. I'm retired. I'm at home a lot of time now. So I was binge watching one day and there was a show on that um, the gentleman who is a host was just going through a number of different incidents and he was doing them in a fairly objective manner, looking at data behind them. But he wasn't projecting the data deep enough, I think, because most of the viewers would have gotten bored. Oh, you're looking at all this. Uh, forget that. Well, he would come in and give the outcome of which he did a, a decent job on providing to me what I thought was a reasonable outcome, whether it was something explainable, something unexplainable. To me, it was much more fact-based on there. And I wish I could remember the name. Um, but one that, um, I'll, I'll mention the name. One was, was on several years back called Chasing UFOs. That one was ridiculous. Um, one of the episodes that they had, um, they actually went out coincidentally to Travis Walton's area where he was um, had his experience at. Travis actually took them out to the region, which is in Arizona. It had snowed. And they had three feet of snow in Arizona in that region. So when they went to film, they had uh, naval, or I should say Indian guides take them back in, in deuce and a quarter trucks to get back into the region. They get out there filming it. And a friend of mine is on the set with them. And they said, hey, we want to get some tree samples. So they send one of the hosts of the show up into a tree to get tree samples. She gets stuck <laughs> and can't get down. So they continue filming in a different area until she can figure out how to get down because they say, we can't help her, you know? So she's stuck. They get these tree samples down. They do all this other stuff. And a friend of mine who was there said, you know, a forest fire went through that region after Travis had his experience and all those trees are gone. <laughs> those tree samples meant absolutely nothing. Because they were searching for radiation. But it looked good. Correct. Yeah. And a friend of mine says, but if they want to know what a tree sample, the true tree samples are, she says, they're actually in my lab. I have them from the 1970s when they took them. But the show, the, the things they did, I mean, they, they tied in like almost like ghost hunting. It was almost like they took the show, took shows which were successful, like Finding Bigfoot and these other shows and said, let's take bits and pieces. Let's put cameras on the back of these guys with backpacks. Let's let them run through the woods looking for UFOs at night. And I don't know any investigator out there who's run through the woods at night with a backpack on with infrared cameras filming what they're doing at night, you know, like that. But, but it, it was bad. Uh, some of the shows when I watch them again, I, I get maybe I've got a biased perspective, too, because I'm an investigator. I'm not the general public looking at them for entertainment value. Also, I'm looking at the real data behind them and I'm analyzing them in my own way based on what I know and what I see on plausible that that's why from my point of view, I don't see as many shows out there unless I'm going to look at them from an entertainment point of view. Have you ever been asked to not report on something? Has a government police, an individual come back and said, you know what? I, 
we prefer you not to talk about this or report it or investigate it. Well, I've, I've actually kept certain stuff out intentionally, mostly to protect witnesses from the stuff coming out. Um, one of them situations I did initially, uh, there was a case down in Salt Fork State Park, which you may be familiar with. Um, a lot of paranormal reportedly happens down in Salt Fork, Southern Ohio. Uh, matter of fact, uh, since you're from Ohio, it actually has the highest number of Bigfoot sightings in the state. The, this individual, we have, uh, at that time, we had not only the, the MUFON investigators, but we had what was called a star team, which were higher profile cases that came in. And when this case came in, um, I wasn't the state director at that time. I was chief field investigator. It came in Ohio. And they, they called me directly and said, we want you to reach out to this witness and get a hold of them because they've got missing time. They lost over three and a half hours of time when they were at Salt Works Park. Well, I took and um, got their name, some basic information about them, not from the witness, but from, in this case, um, the MUFON team. And the, the MUFON team was filling out a report on it. They're going to be sending it to me like in an hour. So I went back and did a ton of research online on the witnesses. And one of the things that I'll do, not all the time, but in certain cases, and I felt like this was one, I'll go to places like LinkedIn, I'll go to Facebook, and I'll kind of profile what the witness does for a living, what activities, what discussion groups they may be involved with, because I want to find out a little bit about the witness's background. Also, I went back and pulled up flight plans of anything that happened in a region the whole night that they were down at the state park. But when... Um, the report came in, I called the witnesses up and actually talked them into going back down to the state park to kind of relive that whole night before that they had their incident at. And there was a number of things I left out of the report intentionally. Uh, and the witness didn't ask me to do it. It's just that I felt necessary uh, at certain points. One was like evidence collection. The witnesses, basically what they said, um, they kind of summed up quick. They were out fishing. They'd been going there for two years the same fishing hole, their favorite spot. They went there basically every weekend. It was the weather was decent out of the whole year. So they're out there one night, got their canopy set up. They've got a uh, fire built. Their fishing poles are propped up right up over the edge of the water, chairs right beside it. And they said every half hour, they rebated their hooks. They put logs on the fire. And they used to joke around playing a game where they would see how close it was, would be to every half hour all night long. Is it time to put a log in the fire? Nope, it's only been 24 minutes. Got to go another six. So you would guess at that time frame. They also had contact with a wife and the girlfriend of one of the individuals all night long. They had good cell phone reception. And the wife and the girlfriend would check on them all night long to see how they're doing. Probably to make sure they're safe also, but a lot of just to see what's happening. Well, at 1030 at night, they saw an object low on the horizon to their north, about the size of a nickel in the sky. Now, they said it wasn't as big as the moon, but it was a little bit smaller than the moon. And they watched her for a while. Then they, they got bored and went back to fishing. That didn't correspond with anything I found on flight plans in the region. 1130, light comes back again, different position. I identified it as being a Quest Medical Technologies plane flying directly over their head at that same time frame. Le uh, 1.30 in the morning, they freaked out because they heard some shrill cries from the, the woods. It freaked them out so bad, they said they almost left. Well, they remembered baiting the hook. The, the younger guy was baiting a hook. The other guy was sitting down at a chair. And he says, the next thing you know, he looks around and says, hey, something's wrong about this whole thing. 
He looks at his cell phone and it's 519 in the morning. Last year, remember, it was 130. The fire's burned out, long burned out. The 19-year-old's been baiting his hook for three and a half hours. He's been standing there. Well, that was when they freaked out. They threw their stuff in the truck, drove home, and they didn't know who to turn to. They Well, they turned and reported in the MUFON. That was the best place they could go to because they didn't want to go to the police. They figured they'd get laughed at if they went to the police. Well, we got the report. I guess I did research on a number of areas on it. I got their clothing. And one of the things that they tell us to do is, okay, if you collect samples, you send them to MUFON headquarters. That way they can look the materials over. They can decide what they want to do. I didn't do that. I looked at the, the clothing and said, okay, first of all, if I send the clothing across the country, because they, they have to go to California, they could get lost. It could damage who knows what. If they get passed around out there, people are going to be handling these things. are going to be doing stuff. Most likely they could contaminate them. The lab they're sending them to is actually 30 minutes from my house in Ohio. So they'd send them clear back across the country to the lab. So I forgot about them conveniently. I put them, I sealed them up. I put them in a corner of my office and said, I'm going to take them out to the lab directly at my time frame. And there's going to be nothing shown on record of these, what the clothing was. Because I didn't want the stuff to disappear because I've heard of cases where samples were being sent through the mail and either disappeared or they get there and the vials that the samples were in were completely cleaned out. And I thought, I'm not going to take a chance on that happening. Because there were ones I know of that had blood samples in, but when they got there, the reported implants and the blood samples were gone. There was drops of blood there, but no implants in the vials. Who would have known that they so, were going to be shipped? Like how, who would have known to intercept them? Do you guys like good question through your, through your correspondence? Do you think maybe somebody uh, monitors your guys' correspondence? Oh yeah, there there's been times I know I've been monitored. Um, on, on a totally different case on there. Um, I had one of these cases that came in that was, when you look at the face value of it, it was ridiculous. Um, an individual was reporting seeing objects on the moon when he was using Google Moon. I'm like, okay, you're seeing unusual th artifacts on the moon. Okay, uh, what are we seeing on the moon? You know, well, he was seeing shapes that he says, these look like impact marks, not of meteors crashing, but something else crashing into the moon. These look like artifacts left over from maybe a civilization. And, and this is where some people see the YouTube stuff. They get uh, excited about it. But I looked at it and some of the interpretations he made were really interesting. Uh, one of the things I do is I do a lot of stuff in 3D, 3D designing, 3D engineering. As, and along with I do lighting effects and everything else. Well, when he was talking about what he was looking at photographically, he was using terminology that the person, normal person does not use. He was pulling stuff out regarding shadows, lighting, and everything else that a normal person would not know. And I started talking, said, what is your background? I said, you know more about photos than I've seen anybody I've talked to run into. He goes, well, I've only done it for like 50 years. He says, I do 3D or I do analysis for bomb results for impact strikes for the military. He was with the Canadian military. He did photo analysis for like almost 50 years at that point. 
Well, he was sending me stuff back and forth, back and forth. And he, he produced his information. He definitely was military. That was his field of study. Well, the next thing you know, I start getting e emails that have stuff not redacted, but stuff physically removed from the emails that he sends me. There's statements being taken out because I'd respond back to his email and he'd say, you know, part of the document I, or part of the information I had isn't there. Did you take stuff out? I said, no, I didn't take stuff out. Well, somebody else was. And they actually showed up on his base. Because one of the mistakes he made is he was sending stuff for a while under his military email address. <laughs> so they were tracking everything. And they showed up and they wanted to know every, they wanted to see everything that he'd had. Now they weren't saying they were believing in everything that he was doing, but they were looking at what he was looking at and they were curious about what was going on with it. But they did show up. And he said it was based like the men in black. They showed up, they wanted everything and they got it and they left. And I said, you gave it to him because damn right. I gave it to him. <laughs> he says, I, I may be so old, but I want to live to see tomorrow. And you think that happens a lot with move on uh, reports or correspondence. Do you think a lot of that gets in? I, I don't uh, think it happens. Yeah. Um, for a while, to be very honest with you, from my point of view, um, back a number of years ago, Bob Bigelow, um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He owns Bigelow Aerospace. Familiar with it. Uh, he's a guy who, yeah, he's a guy that um, started out as a hotel owner, and now he had stuff going to the space station. Created his own space group. He was involved with MUFON for a number of years, but really the reason he got involved with MUFON, I think goes back to something more basic. He was the one that the Pentagon was subcontracting to with the advanced aerial threat identification program back between like 2007, 2012, you had a program being run to look into reportedly UFOs. I think it went way beyond that, but when you've got essentially a beer budget in the military, uh, with the money they, they were allocated, it was a beer budget. You start pulling in all the resources you can. So you can't afford to go out and hire investigators, run them under payroll, which would be very expensive. You can't necessarily afford to buy all this equipment. You have to use other people's equipment. What he did is he basically created Bigelow did, or they went to Bigelow and said, Hey, Bigelow, they knew, researched aliens. He looked at UFOs. He ran his own science group before that, looking for paranormal activities and UFOs and so forth. They thought, well, let's go to a guy that's already doing it, and let's pay them, pay him to take and do stuff for us. Well, he in turn went to MUFON and says, hey, you guys need money for investigations? I'll give you money, which can be used towards investigations if you allow me access to your database, basically. If he's got access to the database, he can see reports coming in. And there were instances we had here in Ohio where they were contacting witnesses before we did when a report came in. And how would they get that information that fast other than potentially seeing it in our database? 
Now that time frame that that lasted wasn't indefinite. Uh, it lasted, I think, to my knowledge, like less than a year. Then the agreement fell apart because they, we, the MUFON, the way I understand it, saw it as a one-way street. He wanted everything from us, but we didn't get as much in return. So the agreement then ended. But for a while, that's where he was getting his information from. He was also, by the way, buying up some smaller UFO groups databases. He bought one in Canada from a guy that was collecting all these UFO reports and everything over the internet. And when you look at the website, the guy's website, it said, you know, I'm no longer doing investigations of retiring. He says Bass is now operating the website, basically. Bass is Bigelow Aerospace. They took it over. So he was just using, to me, being a smart business businessman saying, hey, I'm going to put some money out there and I'm just going to get all the reports and I'm using their their people to do the legwork for me. Anything that's interesting, I'll look at more in depth, which would make sense. So yeah, they were doing it. I mean, that is a smart business, but it makes you wonder like, what is he, what is his end game? What is he, what is he using you know, all this data for? Yeah. And that's a good question because it could be, he's like saying, you know, he, he's been fascinated to, to, you know, in his own words with UFOs pretty much his whole life, his family's seen UFOs. And he says openly, he says, I probably spent more than any private person in investing in UFOs than anybody else in the country. Most likely, I'd say he's probably right. But on one hand, I'm thinking if he's a smart businessman, he knows if he got some artifacts in from an actual UFO, that couldn't be worth billions. That could be worth more than billions. Earlier, you mentioned about the propulsion. What if he discovered some sort of propulsion system, fragments of it, a propulsion system that we don't know anything about could be worth a fortune. He also owned, by the way, a Skinwalker Ranch. If you've heard about that, that was his until a while back and he sold it off. But again, looking at the paranormal again. But I think he's looking at ways to make a buck potentially off of the whole thing. Being a smart businessman. Have you ever been to uh, UFO Mecca, Area 51? Have you spent quite a bit of time there? I had to go out to Area 51. Um, I used to go out to Vegas about every year uh, just to get away. Uh, not so much to gamble, but just to get away. Uh, see the sights, the scenery, check out some shows. And one year I said, okay, I'm going to make, I'm going to do it. I got to do it. I'm going to do the Area 51 trip. Um, I rented a car, drove the 90 some miles out to the desert, followed the directions they had. And the directions, by the way, were spot on. Uh, we go down this road, like 20 some miles off of what was considered like a main highway. And the main highway was a two lane road going through desolate land out in the desert that they warned you open grazing for cattle that you could drive down there through the middle of the night and there's no fences up anywhere. You could hit a cow. That's what they're warning you about. So I go driving down this road, 20 some miles off the road, dust kicking up everywhere. And I did it early in the morning because at that time I went out there, it was like July. It was like 106 to 110 degrees out in the sun. We got out, um, we drove up as close as we could to the markers. And just like the videos you see, as you're driving close, you can see all the surveillance equipment 
setting out in on the hillsides. You don't know what type of electronic equipment is, but it's definitely monitoring anything that's around the region. Uh, we get back to the point, I see the camo dude setting up on top of the hill. And I know, hey, the sign says, don't go past here. So we're not going to go past here. The wife was joking around going up by her. And she goes, what if I step over? What if I step over? I said, if you step over, I said, I'm going back to Vegas. I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen to you. But I think it's like a $1,500 fine for trespassing. And they, they have the sheriff come in, pick you up, and you're gone. Well, I'm sitting there watching the camo dudes through high-powered cameras. They're watching me through, like, binoculars, seeing what I'm doing. I'm just standing there watching. Uh, a bus went through that had the windows all covered up with personnel. At that time, you could see the Janet flights, as they called it, at um, the airport, ready to take personnel out to Area 51. And all you could really see was desert from miles around. And you knew you were still like 20 some miles from the base at that point. Uh, you weren't going to get back in there. Uh, if you went past, they would pursue you and have the sheriff pick you up. But I want to, just because I had to make the trip. But if you wanted a place that's isolated away from everybody, that's a great place. And that way you could test out aircraft of all different types out there and you've got plenty of room around you but i didn't make it up the mountain like you see in some of the videos i didn't go that far if someone wanted to become a mufon investigator what what would they need to do you said there, you mentioned earlier there's a test yeah how do you prepare for the test what what type of background do you look for in people who are interested in becoming an investigator i be honest with you i look at all backgrounds because I'd rather have multiple inputs on people's interpretation of what's, what they're looking at in the report. Uh, we've got individuals in the state of Ohio, we've got 13 investigators right now of all different backgrounds. And it's great to say somebody has a military background in certain areas, or somebody has like an engineering background, but you can have that person who just does to me, like even lawn care work but they may look at the report in a more unique way than I would and maybe see something that I don't. So all inputs can be good. What MUFON does though, to maintain more consistency is with the investigators exam. What they do is somebody who wants to become a field investigator can reach out to MUFON through their website at MUFON.com. They have a field investigators manual, which can be purchased. Now, what I'd recommend somebody doing before they purchase is call me up, talk to me, find out, you know, what they're really getting into. Uh, because sometimes when they, they, they say, hey, I want to be an investigator like the guy on TV, we're not doing like the guy on TV. Uh, it's not quite like that. Uh, or like the paranormal ghost hunting shows. You're not going to walk into a house and see a ghost two minutes after you walk in chance of that happening is not great, you know? Uh, so I give them the reality of the whole situation on there, but if they're interested, then they can get the manual offline. Uh, what they can do is study it. It goes through a lot of standardized procedures on conducting investigations, tools that you can use. And I've also done, uh, I did a training seminar for MUFON one year 
software went into software applications, things you can do using computer software and other tools available like that to analyze photographs, videos, find flight plans, find all this other basic information to help, as I call it, scrub the list. Let's eliminate all the knowns so we get down to that thing you're really going after is the thing you can't explain at the end of the day. Well, it goes to a number of tools and procedures on here. It goes how to talk to the witnesses, interviewing procedures to witnesses, how to document things, a lot of standardized stuff. And there's so many things out there that a lot of people wouldn't believe it on stuff you can help use to do investigations. I just think the guys doing investigations like back in the 1960s, how your hands had to feel tied at times because of, well, you got to call the witness on the phone. You got to drive out to see the witness or you got to send them a letter, you know, all these basic tools like that and just access to stuff. Like if you want to find out a flight going into Cleveland, I can find that flight out in a few, few minutes. They'd have to do a lot of legwork to get that all done. So you've got so many tools available. Then if, you know, once they go through the, the examination book, then they can take an online test. The online test allows them to go back in, take it, and then if they pass the test, they're notified immediately. And then they also send me an email notifying me that somebody has passed the examination. And then what we'll do is we'll get them lined up to mentor with another investigator in their region. That way, what they can do is they can go, go through again their reporting procedure because there's only so much you can learn from a book. There's those people who, you know, hey, I read the book, but I'm still not sure about this. We'll walk you through the whole procedure on there. We'll take you out. We'll, we'll work with you on conducting the investigations out there until somebody's comfortable enough that they want to, you know, start doing the stuff on their own. And then we'll let them do their own cases out there. But it, it, it's good to have people of all backgrounds doing that. Do you recruit at all? Do, do you, you know, when you're doing these conferences or these speaking engagements and people, uh, you know, you're like, hey, you know, you seem to show a lot of interest in this. Maybe you should be uh, yeah. an investigator. Mm -hmm. I'll do that. I'll have the people who come up. And, you know, hey, uh, how do you get into that stuff? How do you do the stuff you do? Because I show them the techniques the tools I use and the other stuff. And a number of people are fascinated about that. Or you get the ones now who are saying, hey, with the pandemic, I'm just sitting at home doing nothing. I'd like to, to keep busy and just, you know, find something else to fill that time with. So you had mentioned we have a lot of above then. Yeah, I was going to say, you mentioned there's a lot of online resources. Other than online resources, what would someone need in order to get like involved uh, and get started like, is there anything they would need to purchase or is it pretty much everything they can use now on the internet or phone or whatever? Yeah. With the, uh, in this case, the manual they have to purchase that's online and they have to become a MUFON member at the same time. That way, what they do is once they pass the exam, they get access to our database. Then, Well, with the computer, I'd recommend that, you know, people have a, a, some sort of a computer, either a laptop or a desktop. I know some individuals that can do stuff through smartphones. Um, I'm not a smartphone savvy. As some, I'm still relying on the desktop and so forth a lot. That's a plus. When it comes into certain tools, uh, like let's say, for example, Geiger counters, EMF detectors, certain other tools, 
I tell them don't buy them necessarily visuals in their group that already have that stuff. So don't buy stuff unless you find out you really want it and you really need it. Uh, otherwise you may be investing money into something you don't need. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff I do is a lot of computer research. Once I get the witnesses report, just double checking things, following up on things. And I tell people that, you know, what my uh, investigation procedure is, I'm, I'm not saying I'm a skeptic, but I go in skeptical. I go in cautious. And then when I go in, I want to see data behind things. So when I do my research, it, uh, it's how people were passing litmus tests along the way. Was it an aircraft? There's nothing in your region. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Was a natural celestial object? Were you seeing Venus something? Nope. Okay, let's scrub that out of the way. And we keep doing all of these things until we get down to that point where I'm saying, hey, this witness saw this and I have no explanation for it. And at times I still don't stop. I still keep saying, hey, let's, why did the witness see what they saw? Maybe there's some reason they saw what they did. What's the uh, typical time of an investigation from start to end? MUFON likes to have, once a case is is submitted, they like to have it um, reviewed and finalized in 60 days or 90 days. It doesn't mean you can't go back in and open it back up if you want to add and change data in it. But the main reason they do that is so that a case doesn't just stay open indefinitely. Like when I got in it, you had cases that weren't being researched like 13 years ago that somebody may have gotten involved in MUFON. They said, hey, I, I like this. And all of a sudden, then they got bored. And we had some people just basically dropped everything and walked away. No notification. Or if he got a hold of, yeah, I'm still working on that. And then they don't. And next thing you know, this case is drug on for a long time. And maybe conversations they had were forgotten information they had may have not been put in reports. So you're losing information and losing data. That's why it's best to kind of do it while it's fresh. Everything is fresh in their mind at that time. What's uh, one of the longer investigations you've done? Well, I've actually gone back and taken cases that were somebody else's from years ago. Uh, One of the things I did, uh, and just as a hobby, Back in the 1970s, I lived in an area down by Ashland, Ohio, uh, which is about 50, 60 miles south of Cleveland. And I remember going to work one day. I worked in the region. I go to work and somebody says, hey, did you hear about this UFO case that happened about 13 miles from where we were at? I said, no, what was it? They said, well, an Army Reserve helicopter was flying to Cleveland. And they saw a UFO at close range. Really? Well, where it happened at was in a place that I camped at almost every year. And I'm like, wow, it happened right where I camped at and I just missed it. Damn, you know? Well, it was one of my favorite UFO cases. Well, I found out years later, it's actually one of the top cases ever in the country. Coincidentally, I was doing a talk um, over by Huron, Ohio, at a library. 
I'm doing this talk over a totally different case. And one of the, one of the individuals in the audience goes, you know, I got a question for you. You ever hear about the coin helicopter incident back from 1973? I said, yeah, I've, I've researched it some. I've read on it. Um, I got a hold of a book by one of the investigators that did a lot of the research on it. And I said, I can give you, you know, a few minutes on it. So I gave him like five minutes kind of overviewing the case for everybody. And I said, did that answer your question about that case, sir? He goes, yeah, it was the way it happened. I don't claim to be too bright at times. <laughs> but when somebody says that was the way it happened, I don't know who that guy is, but he's not getting out of this room. Well, it was one of the crewmen on board the helicopter. I'm like, wow. So here it is all these years later. This is a guy claiming to be a crewman, which maybe is, maybe isn't, you know, at that point. We talked for a little bit and he goes, that helicopter had ongoing problems. And we we're talking privately after that whole incident. He says the compass was going nuts. They had to keep replacing it. The radios didn't work right. We had all sorts of issues with that helicopter after that time. Really? So the next day, this, this is where the story gets really wild. Next day, I um, talked to at the university where I was at. I was talking to some of my staff that worked for me. And one of the guys was in from another department that, that taught criminal justice. And I said, you know, I'm trying to track down a guy to see if I can verify who he is. I said, this guy claimed that he was on this helicopter back in the seventies. He's an army reserve, uh, army reservist, but also a Cleveland cop. I said, I'd like to, is there a way to track him down? He goes, okay, what's his name? Next day, this guy walks in with somebody, I have no idea who he is. And he goes, I hear you're asking about my cousin, Johnny. I said, what? John Healy is my cousin. And it, he was actually applying for a position at our, our school. And he says, yeah, it's my cousin. And he verified who the guy was I talked to. It was him. He identified him what was like, what he exactly what he looked like, everything else. He goes, yeah, we know the whole story. He's told us the same thing. So I got information from him. And then I kept digging deeper on that same story. Interesting enough, I started checking out the other crewmen to see what happened to him. There are four crewmen on board. One had died. The other one lived 12 miles from me. I said, hmm, 12 miles away. I reached out to him. We made contact. I had uh, a couple hour talk on the phone with him, multiple, multiple hour interview. We ran through the whole incident. And he told me this thing was close enough that when he encountered this object, he says, we're flying at 1,500 feet. This thing comes out of like the, the southeast at a speed that looked like it was 400 miles an hour at 1,500 feet. It stopped directly above them, in ahead and in, above them. He said it was so close, I thought it was going to hit our rotor blades. And they were, in theory, in a dive to try to get below this, below this object. When they saw the object coming, they put the helicopter in a dive. The last they remember, they were at 500 feet. The next thing you know, they're at 3,500 feet. They went up 3,000 feet. No turbulence, no nothing. 
a green light had involved engulfed a helicopter. They don't know exactly how long they speculated how long that the, they watched this object. The light goes out, the object keeps going on in kind of like a northwest direction. The next day, they, re, they returned a report in regarding what happened. There are magnaflux tests being done on the rotor blades looking for cracks. Why would you look for cracks, coincidentally, unless something was thought to be under high stress? The compass was swapped out. They looked at the radio issues. The crewman I talked to said they're almost completely out of fuel on the flight that they normally never had a problem with. But they're down to five gallons of fuel left there. He says when they landed, the alarms were going off that they were master caution lights for low fuel. He said it was a silver-like object that the lights uh, had a light on the front and aft of the object that illuminated surface. You could see it was like metallic. Interestingly enough on here, uh, after it happened, uh, I asked a crewman, I said, did they ever talk to you about um, unusual dreams after this whole thing happened? Because how would you know about that? I said, it's my understanding that the Surgeon General's office was trying to find out if you guys had unusual dreams after it happened. He goes, I was asked that question by the flight commander. He also asked other crewmen the same issue. They went through him to see if the crewmen had had unusual dreams. So they were looking for something after this whole thing happened. Um, the show that I did recently that was about that case. And they also talked to the crewman I hadn't gotten, been able to get a hold of. And he basically said the same things, you know, that, hey, this was just incredible. But it was also during a time frame when he also had a high number of UFO sightings in the country in the 1970s. And I did further tracking down of this thing. I thought, whatever happened to the helicopter? There may be some evidence. They decommissioned a helicopter in 2009, 2008, actually. They assigned it a, a civilian number. Then they gave it to the Colombians to use for drug trafficking, tracking down drug traffickers in Colombia. I found, this is how far the investigation can go. I found a report in a Chinese newspaper where that helicopter with that tail number had crashed in the jungle, killing all four crewmen while it was on a drug trafficking run. One article I saw, I know I, I saw in it that said that it went down from mechanical issues. Now, what if the mechanical issues were related to all that incident 40 years before? The thing I also found, WikiLeaks documents. I found WikiLeaks documents where they're talking about that area in Colombia. They're going in, they were spraying hectares with defoliants, almost like Vietnam. Let's kill off any plants. Let's kill off all the crops. They also had reports on how many helicopters, how many helicopters were inactive, along with tail numbers. The month that that helicopter reportedly crashed in the Chinese newspaper, there's absolutely nothing about it in the WikiLeaks documents. Another helicopter with a different tail number crashed. So I'm like, did it crash or not? And these reports, by the way, just weren't Columbia. These reports were coming back from Columbia to Patrick Air Force Base and then going back to the Pentagon. Now, I don't think it was just a, I think that helicopter itself was decommissioned the same time a whole bunch of other ones were from the same era. But it's also a good way to get rid of some evidence 
Because if they say the helicopter crashed in Columbia, I sure ain't going down there to look for it. But it made me wonder how many mechanical issues had been ongoing for all those years with that same helicopter. Was it something that if you looked at the repair manuals, that this thing had way more instance than anything else? Because I, I can't forget the words of that, of actually both of the crewmen. It became a hangar queen. It meant it was in the hangar more than it was flying. But that was one where I loved the case and I kept researching it deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's like the cold case. And I was shocked when I turned up all the WikiLeaks documents and all the other stuff later on that came out. So you consider that an ongoing investigation at this point? You, you still don't feel like that's a case closed? Right now, well, right now it's at the point it's basically, it's almost a closed case again, because unless you can find like radar data from that time frame, other stuff. But I was surprised how many ground witnesses I found still around. Um, I did um, a talk down in the Ashland region and a guy came up to me at the talk and he, I knew him. He was a, he was a fireman volunteer. He goes, you're not a helicopter case. He says, I saw it. I said, what? He says, yeah. He says, uh, me and a whole bunch of guy, guys and girls our age, we're out doing stuff we shouldn't have been drinking, which meant most likely drinking who knows what. He told me where he was at was only a few miles from that place where the helicopter incident was. And it was a place that teenagers used to hang out back then. He said, yeah, there's about 20 of us down there that saw it that night. And he showed me the flight path it took. And yep, he saw it. He was in that region. Another friend of mine said he saw the same object. And I said, do you ever report it? He goes, yeah, I talked to some guy back in like the 1970s or 80s about it. Well, I found his original report from the 1980s where he, he described what he saw back then. So we had a number of reports coming from all these now, some, though, weren't right. Some were, I think, kind of piggybacking on the story. And they were reporting things miles from where it was at. But I was surprised how many people turned up and had stories that were describing the event basically from different angles. There was even a family who saw it, who stopped right in the area, was only about 500 feet from the helicopter at its lowest point, and saw it from the ground similar to this that are ongoing that you're really like, this isn't closed yet. I'm, I'm still really interested in this. And I think there's more to be undiscovered, discovered. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. Cause you know, it's, it's, I couldn't give a number, but there's a group I'm in uh, that we didn't meet this year because of the pandemic, but we normally get together. And a lot of people, people in this group are all longtime researchers. They always kick around these stories of these older cases that they love. And they keep digging into. Um, one of the guys in the group has written a number of books on Roswell. And I kid him. I said, man, wouldn't you get off that Roswell thing? Wouldn't you think you get at me? Come on, man. It's been 70 years, you know. Can't you move on by now to something else? And it's a joke. But, you know, he says, hey, I'm still turning up occasionally. I'm not out there once in a while. You know, that I roll over this rock and here I find something. Here's a, a classic example that a lot of cases out there, even though they've been going back years ago, aren't necessarily dead. Um, on the other side of our state in Trumbull County, there's an incident where um, a police officer was out on patrol. And even before that, um, the local police department, Liberty Township Police Department, 
was getting phone calls from individuals saying, hey, I've got this green UFO flying down my street. Well, these streets were kind of like rural streets. They're saying, we're seeing UFOs. Well, they kind of laughed it off at the dispatch office to begin with after the first couple, but they started getting more of them. So they sent an officer out and the officer, to kind of shorten the whole story up, goes out there and he sees an object pass over his car. His car dies. The engine cuts off. Lights go out, everything. He gets out of the car and he's even thinking about shooting at this thing. It's close enough. The object passes on and then uh, he's able to restart his car back up. The electric comes back on, his lights come back on the stuff and he's able to get it restarted and go. But he just completely freaked out when he saw it. A number of other officers in that same, or in those multiple townships saw the same thing. And that whole story, by the way, never made it public. Never made public. A local news team had called up um, the local guard base over in uh, Youngstown to see if there was anything they knew about. It had been inquired about, but it never really made headlines. There is a investigator a number of years ago. He's passed away since then. His name was Kenny Young. He was calling about a, um, uh, he's trying to find out about a UFO crash down by Dayton. So it going back to technologies, like we talked about earlier, think about if you want to get a phone number, you just go on the internet and Google it for somebody. You go back to the 1990s and you want a phone number, you want the directory assistance. So he goes and says, I'd like the, the uh, phone number for Liberty Police Department. Liberty Police Department is by Dayton. So he calls him up thinking he's going to take and talk to the Dayton Police Department, talk about a UFO crash down in that region. So directory assistance gives him a number four Liberty Township Police, opposite side of the state. He says, I'd like to talk to you about this UFO incident that happened. Yeah, that was two years ago. Yeah, I was on dispatch that night. Really? The incident he was inquiring about, he didn't tell them happened years before that. He knew he had a, he had a hit on a whole separate incident he just stumbled on. And he played it. He actually got the 911 tapes from all those in that whole night. And there was like three hours of conversations that you can hear the officers like, hey, this thing is over here on such and such a street on Samson Drive now. Really? Yeah. And some of them are making jokes, but then they're also getting serious. They've got the police, or I mean, the, the local TV station calling them up inquiring. They call out to the reserve, or the reserve base and talk to radar, air traffic control. They confirm there's nothing in the area. But yet these guys are seeing stuff all over the place in that region. But that was one that never would have hit the light of day unless he stumbled on it completely by accident. So, and who knows how many cases like that's out there that we just don't know about. If you had to guess, how many um, reports do you have in the MUFON database from its entire history? Oh, my goodness. 
I, I wouldn't even want to give an exact number. Who knows? Could be like 25, 30,000 more cases. Wow. We're getting thousands a year now. In Ohio, we had just Ohio alone, um, 189 last year. Now, California gets cases than we do. Uh, other states like Florida get way more cases. And I think it's not because, you know, there's more UFOs there. It's because the environment makes it easier for people to see objects year round. You think California is a more, that's just our climate. You've got more people outside doing activities all year round than mm-hmm. what we do here. Same with Florida. And I think that's why they have such high case numbers at times. But that number may not even be close at 25,000. It's got to be way beyond that, I would think. Wow. I forget what the exact number was internationally last year alone was. I can probably find it. Uh, something may be close. If people wanted to go on online, can they can they access the MUFON database to see cases? Or is that kind of like... You no. Know, that's proprietary. Yeah, I'd have to. Yeah, they can only see certain information. And then information like witness names and stuff like that is all cut out too. They wouldn't see anything like that. Uh, they keep all that stuff private just for protection of the witnesses. Because I had um, up in um, Canada, I worked, where um, the witness is one of these really kind of crazy stories where the witness turns a report in where he's in his bedroom and he sees an alien at the end of his bed. And he's looking at this alien, the aliens moving around in the room. I'm like, okay. You know, it sounds like something from sci-fi channel almost. Well, I look, I start checking report out. I, I contact the witness. He's vague about his background. He has a unique name and I check his background out. And I find out that he's in higher education at a level that if it became known that he was talking about this stuff, they may, it could endanger his position in at where he's at. Well, his story comes out. And the next thing you know, two other stories pop up in the same region from other witnesses with photographs. Now their photographs, when I analyzed them were um, Photoshop, basically. To be really straightforward is they used phone apps that inserted aliens into the photograph. And it wasn't in a comical form. It was one that if somebody wasn't being careful, they would have really made a mistake. So I picked up on after I did the analysis, confronted one of the witnesses, and he goes, uh, I, 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 I don't know anything about phone apps. That must have been put on there by accident. I, I, I don't know anything about that stuff. Well, he got burnt. Uh, the other one, I said, by the way, it wasn't a phone app. It was actually somebody who was standing in the room in a Halloween costume. And I sent him a picture of the Halloween costume off of Amazon, <laughs> the same one. But the first witness who reported the event, the alien, wouldn't contact me back. That's because the other stories broke. And I'm thinking, you know, he he's afraid. He may have actually had a good report. As crazy as his report sounded, it may have been factual for all I know. He had a very credible background and I think he just disappeared because the other cases came out in his region. I'm thinking if, if his name came out, that could damage his career majorly. And he was at a very high level at a university and I'm positive it was him. So I, that's why I like witnesses names not coming out. You know, you mentioned earlier about losing time. How often is that, uh, does that come up where people, I had an experience where I lost some time. So I was in high school 
I was waiting at the bus stop. And I remember getting at the bus stop. I think the bus got around, you know, usually around 7.05, 7.10, the bus would pick me up. And I'm standing there. The bus just never showed up. At this point, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to have to go back home and have my mom drive me to school because somehow the bus never came. I get home and it's nine o'clock, like 9.15. And I know I wasn't standing out there for that long. And I, I remember mentioning to my mom, like, I don't know how, but time must have went by really quick because I remember getting out there super early, ready for the bus, my normal time, and now it's later. And there's no way I stood out there for that long. Mm-hmm. But there was no explanation of where where that time went, what happened, why I was just standing there for almost two hours. Uh, I don't remember seeing anything, but I also was about 16, 17 years old, and all of a sudden, boom, two hours of my life are gone. How often does that? Yeah, we don't get a high percentage. I think you're probably only maybe talking about 1% of the cases, something like that, maybe 2% where somebody talks about the missing time. Um, the entities isn't a high percentage of cases we get in. The majority of stuff people turn in are lights in the sky. Mm-hmm. But that's also why MUFON now added in what they call an ERT team. It's an it's entity research team. Because they started looking at this in a different way now that, Hey, people do have these events out there where they're, you know, they have missing time. They're seeing things like the fishermen I was talking about earlier. They didn't say that they saw an alien, but they kept telling me over and over again, as they were ticked as they lost three and a half hours of time. They can't explain. Um, I probably get maybe a handful of cases like that in a year. Um, I've done several of them. I did uh, like that one up to fishermen there. I did another one in, in the United Kingdom where um, sometimes, you know, when you get reports in from somebody who says they were a child at the time it happened, you kind of like, okay, yeah, but you're a kid. Come on. Uh, you're X number of years old. How, how credible can that really be? Well, the individuals talking about, um, um, driving down the road and as they're driving down the road, uh, over in England, I mean, a lot, a lot of the roads were like lined of hedges on both sides. He's going down the road. There's hedges on both sides of the roads. It's a narrow road for about one and a half cars. The rooftop is open. He says he looks up and sees three objects through the rooftop window. The objects are pacing and following the car. Then they start coming closer and his dad pulls over. Um, his dad is driving. His mom's in the front seat, and he's got um, another sibling in the seat beside him. The car pulls over. Mom, he, dad shuts the engine off. Mom, dad, both, boom, head goes over sideways. They fall asleep. Sibling, boom, falls asleep. And next thing you know, he's out of it. He says, then the... Um, Next thing you know, he says he starts waking up, coming around. He says he looks up and dad reaches up, turns the car on. They start driving on their merry way and they get to London two hours later than what they're supposed to be there. They lost two hours. He went back and he says, I can confirm this with my mother with you. He says, I asked her about the incident. She remembered the incident that, you know, yeah, we got there two hours later and we have no idea why. But here was the odd thing that came up in a conversation with the dad. The mom and dad are divorced. Uh, The son's kind of uh, estranged from the dad. 
And in the conversation, the dad says, he's not my real son. They took my son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see your face right now. And you're like, what the, uh, what? He goes, yeah, they took my real son that night. You're not him. Now, where would a comment like that come from? And this is when it brings that whole thing of here, you've got a child reporting a case that now you're looking at it a completely different way, mm -hmm. but it's missing time again. What about physical evidence? Missing time. What about with uh, the, I know a person who told me they, it was them and their mother both received some type of shot from an alien and they both had the same marking on their left shoulder and in the same spot and they both were like yep we both had the same exact shot how often if ever does it come like is there actual physical evidence where you're like okay we can investigate that but we can check and see if you have you know markings mm -hmm. um i know you mentioned earlier like clothing stuff like that but like when there's physical and you even mentioned blood how often is there physical evidence right. that you can uh, investigate a low percentage that's that's the challenge um, when I did that, that case down at Salt Fork, like I say, gathered the clothing. Um, what I did is that night it happened, I gathered the clothing. Um, like I say, kept those locked up away from everybody. What I also did is the following weekend, I didn't have my equipment with me that night. I went down the night after it happened. I got some more equipment and went down the following weekend. Also, I wanted to see if, if these guys were lying to me because they said they'd been too scared to leave the house. They had, they, they, they did construction. They, they didn't work the whole following week, actually multiple weeks. They said it took them several weeks to get back to work. And then they had to be home before dark because they were terrified to be out at night. And the wife and the girlfriend confirmed that they also all slept in the same room of a house because they're too terrified. The guys even, no, we're not leaving the house. We're all staying in this room because they're scared to death. Well, the, the, I went down the following weekend to see if they were there because they told me, no, we're not going down to that. If I show up and they're there, I'm going to cut loose on a man. Well, they weren't there. Everything he said was factual on the other side of the lake from where they were at. They said, yeah, there's a couple of guys over there drunk almost every weekend. They're fishing all night long. They're, they're probably drunk. Well, they're right. There was another group over there drunk, but they weren't, weren't there on the night they were there, but their story did hold true that. Yeah. These guys were there. The, I took and uh, gathered soil samples. Now here's a unique thing about the soil samples earlier. I told you on there that, um, I'd had experiences myself going back to the 1960s. Well, this would be like a whole nother episode, just so that you know of the way the story goes. Uh, my experiences go way, way, way beyond what we talked about. When um, I went down to the state park to do the investigation, the initial one with them, these two guys, we, we were down there till like 11 or midnight, 11 o'clock or midnight. These two guys were walking me through everything. And the one, one of the witnesses was just terrified out of his pants. He was about to jump out of his pants and any little sound went off. Well, I sense something off in a certain direction. And next thing I hear a crack and he responds to it. But I sensed that something was there before he did. And he responded and went berserk. Well, I didn't tell him that I had a sensation. I, I jokingly call it a spidey sense, the way I feel. But I just don't, I just don't say anything about it. I just make notes. 
the following weekend when I went down, when they weren't there, I'm walking the state park at three in the morning by myself. So I'm going all around that whole region. And I was at a region where they weren't at. And I'm, I'm like, I'm going around with EMF detectors. I'm looking for other things because one of the things about trace evidence I was told to look for is, you know, look for magnetic anomalies because there's been times when magnetic anomalies have been noted around where these events have happened at. Well, I didn't find any, anything I could trace with EMF detectors or anything like that. But I'm walking around, I'm going, what? something happened. Something happened right in here. I just lit up like a, I mean, I was just like on fire. My whole body was something. I felt like something happened here. I looked down. I was standing in a perfect circle of dead grass. Now, not from like somebody burning a fire ring. No, it was dead grass, period, in that spot. And I made note of where it was at. And I took, got out tape measures and coordinated off of landmarks. And I took soil samples from around that whole region. I took the soil samples and also never sent them to MUFON. I took them to a lab I knew about. And the lab did the analysis for me. And they said, um, you know, you gave us all these containers with soil samples, but no indication on where they're from. Nothing. Only a number. I said, yeah, that's right. Only a number. I said, I've got a map of where everything was taken at and coordinating where all the numbers were. Well, they said, we found anomalies in the iron content in the soil. They said some had extremely high iron contents compared to the other one. I said, really? Well, when we compared the content where I was standing at, when I had that sensation, had the highest iron content of the whole region. As you got farther away from that, it dropped significantly. And one of the things I was told is, you know, if there's a potential landing, the iron can almost be sucked up through the soil from whatever magnetic field is being generated. And they said, that's something to potentially look for. So we found the unusual iron content. The other thing that popped up is in the clothing. Not in both of them, but in one of the witnesses, um, there were chemicals that aren't uncommon, but it's where they're at on the clothing was really weird. Uh, normally, these chemicals with what people normally use wouldn't be in this region on the clothing. And the reason we made note of this is we looked for comparisons to other cases. Well, it was kind of like a... Um, um, it was almost like an ingredient used in deodorant is what was found. But you'd look for stuff under your armpits and stuff like that. This was on weird places on the clothing, not even close to where the armpits were. That didn't make sense. Well, in a comparison, back in the 1960s, there was a, a, an abduction case involving the Hills, Betty and Barney Hill. They were an interracial couple back then that was one of the first noted abduction cases. Betty Hill's dress also contained the same material on unusual parts of the clothing. A case in Canada also had the same thing, the same chemicals on very unusual parts of the clothing. So now we had similar, you know, unique anomalies with the clothing that we're looking at. What is the chemical exactly that keeps showing up? It was almost like an aluminum oxide or something like that. I'm going out of memory, 
I'd have to pull the report up. The report that was done was like a 30 page report on the clothing and the anomalies that we, that were found. But also what they found is normal stuff too. Um, that wouldn't be unusual. It was supposed to be on the clothing, but that's what popped up is it just wasn't the chemical is where it was at on the clothing, mm-hmm. which is what was strange. Well, when Betty Hill was abducted, she said they grabbed her on certain parts of the body, but they also found discoloration, by the way, on her clothing. She had a blue dress on that she said was put in a closet once she, after that incident, she only wore it once. Parts of the clothing had turned from blue to pink. And one of the theories is it was almost like a mold attacking the clothes from something. The one fisherman, he had a jacket that was blue that also had turned pink in certain spots when they did the analysis. Wow. Does MUFON have a warehouse that they store evidence or do you have a warehouse that you store evidence? So like when people turn in clothing, what, what happens to it afterwards? So if you needed to go back and research or, you know, take a look at something again later on, are you able yeah. to access that? Well, the stuff I've got is at the lab that did the analysis for me. MUFON didn't get it. That's still at the lab. Now MUFON itself has stuff that they send to labs. And here's one of the problems you can run into with some of these cases out there is it goes back to following, you know, like the paper trail behind what happens to some of these materials. If you gathered evidence on these cases and it gets analyzed, the minute it goes from like the investigator to move on to whoever else in this whole chain of custody, it should be documented every single step along the way on what happens to it. There has been cases, and I, I, I won't name any off the top of my head, where that chain of custody has not been followed. And that some evidence has like disappeared, and all of a sudden it turns up later, and nobody knows what happened to it in between these incidents out there. Now, I prefer, that's why like on my stuff, I left them right with the lab. That way, if I need them, I know the individual well enough, I can call them up, they're there. The problem is if, if they don't stay in some place like that, who knows what's going to happen to them or how they can get whatever it can happen to them down the road. The other thing you'd mentioned too, is uh, people, you could give resources for people to do their own inv- investigation, kind of stuff like that. Are there any sites that people would be like caught off guard or not caught off guard, but more surprised like, Oh, this is available to the public. Oh, there's several sites you can go to. One is if somebody just wants to look at stuff in general, there is a website called UFO stalker, UFO stalker. What they do is they show some of the more recent UFO cases have been submitted to MUFON. Now, all they do is they give you some very basic information, like the time, the date, the location, no witness names. Uh, They'll give a basic description of the event. But the nice thing about that website is if you go into it, it's got a map you can zoom in on. And if you zoom in around your region where you're from, it actually shows you the cases pertinent to that region going back X number of time frame. So it's kind of a good way to explore it. If somebody says, Hey, I live in such and such a city, you know, Hey, I saw something back. Oh man, I saw something back in this time frame. They can go back and check out to see if somebody else may have seen the same thing. So that's a good site to go to something that I always encourage other people to do is if you see something, you know, in the sky, you know, Hey, kind of be your own investigator a little bit, you know, like we'll get, um, occasionally I'll get up in the morning. Actually, when I was working, <laughs> I'd get up in the morning. Now I don't have to worry about that anymore. I'd see Venus. I'm going, oh man, we're going to get UFO reports coming in tonight from Venus. Well, there's um, 
some different websites. One is one is actually a software you can even get. And they've also got a, a free thing on the website that you can explore. It's called Stellarium. Stellarium is an astronomy software that you can go in and you can say, okay, let's go to Stellarium. Let's look at um, if you can put you right where you live at. You can, you can be right where you live at. You can set the calendar to any date you want. And it computer generates a sky pattern. So it's like you're looking from the ground at the sky and you can say, oh man, Venus is right there. Look at that. So I can explain it. Because sometimes people get embarrassed when they take and turn a report in and find out you saw Venus, you know. Um, there's a number of other sites depending on how deep they want to go with this. One I was putzing around with the one night was there's one called ABS, or I should say ADS, ADS.B, Exchange. It actually gives you air traffic. Now, when you see like on TV, when they, they may discuss like an airplane crashing or something like that, and they go back and they pull these old charts up showing you the flight pattern. There's a couple different ones they go to. One is called Flight uh, Flight Aware. Another one's called Flight Radar 24. These allow anybody to kind of go in and see like the last few days of aircraft in your region. But what they do is they scrub out military applications. So you can see like private aircraft, commercial aircraft, but you scrub out military ones. Well, I've got, I use those pro, those websites and I've got access to go back over two years on their websites to look at stuff. But the ADS exchange allows me to also not only look at theirs, but look at military to a degree. And the one night I was playing around with that website and I was looking at military applications. I just for the heck of it, I went out to Las Vegas. What the heck, you know? And here I find in the region a drone flying around. And it even showed me the model number drone because what that website does is they pick up transponders of aircraft, but they don't filter out all military applications. You, you won't necessarily see fighter jets flying around, but I've seen in this case um, B-52 bombers, track them going across the country, uh, drones, helicopters of different types. Uh, when I was down in Myrtle Beach, I was tracking um, um, ospreys flying down the coast. So that's that's kind of a unique kind of to check out. You know, there's so there's a number of tools like that just for to me playing around with on there. Very cool. Those are some off the top of my head. Yeah. So where if people want to check you out, where can they find you? I know you. You know, obviously you have your Facebook. Um, what other sources? websites, social media, where can they find you at? Well, if they go to Ohio MUFON, uh, they can reach out to me through the website, ohiomufon.com. Or my own email is uh, the one I gave you, mufon.twertzman at gmail.com. I was doing my own podcast for a while and I had to take a hiatus for it for a while. I've done my own podcast for a couple of years now. Um, it was called Euphodicy. It's on Spotify and the other networks out there. So I've been doing that now, but uh, I took a break for that because I've got shows like yours I've been doing that I, I pop up on occasionally out there. Hopefully uh, this year with the pandemic, maybe tapering off, I've had libraries now starting to inquire about doing programs 
uh, out in the public again. So I'm hoping this year that maybe I can start doing a few of those because I like those outreach programs like that. They're so great because you get to talk to the people directly. And I love to look at the body language of the people, not just hear their story, but look at their, their body language, look how they're, they're acting. Cause that can tell you a lot about how they really feel about what happened too. So those, those are some of the best way right now. This is a great interview. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. You got back to me super quick and we were able to get together some amazing stories, crazy encounters you've uh, witnessed and, and reported on and investigated. And, you know, you've given us some really great resources. And if people are interested in becoming an investigator, we know how to do that now. I'd love to have you on again at some point And, you know, we could talk more about your personal experiences. I, I think. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to go in on those, and that, um, I'm sure there's many stories that you you haven't even touched the surface on yet. Oh, and and I think once you hit that, I don't talk about the personal side as much, but that one's kind of eye-opening. Uh, it's one of those, I guess, the best way you can describe it is you you think about these these memories you have on one hand and say, ah, it didn't happen. Then something pops up that says, oh crap, <laughs> I think it happened after all. But it'd be a good time. So I appreciate you coming on and I hope people will check you out. And uh, if they're interested more, they'll go on MUFON. And obviously if they do come across any experiences and whatnot, report it. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no problem. Anytime. Just let me know.